Totally Football Show. Today, we join the Carabao of Love. Massive boost for Slavin's prospects at West Ham as Hammers get win over Spurs and have now missed out on Claude Puel too. We dig into Claude joining Leicester, a move that left even the manager himself lost for words. Oh, he's always like that. Hmm. Elsewhere, with exciting team debuts and a squirrel, we round up all the League Cup action and look ahead to the weekend's drama, Spurs at Old Trafford and that kind of thing. We stick a thermometer into the women's game. Look at England in another World Cup final, second this year. Did one of those root and branch reviews actually work? Plus, what on earth is going on now in Italy? It's all in this Totally Football Show. I'm very excited by today's lineup on the Totally Football Show. We've got James Horncastle. Good day to you. I was just going to say the reassuring, familiar tones of James Horncastle. You went and did, did that. Also, and this is exciting, we brought across the leader of our biggest rivals in the podcasting world, our arch enemies. Ian McIntosh. <laughs> totally Football League show, because, of course, you do the... Yeah, yeah, yeah right. No, OK. No, and you're all over the League Cup as well, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Carabao Cup. Yeah. Also in today, it's a debut for Carrie Dunn. Hello. Hi, Carrie. We hear a lot about carried off in football matches. Yes. But not so, so much, much about carried on, yes. Carried on. Very good. So I've got a little game here of true or false yeah. about Carrie here. Who wants to play? I'm in. All right. And you at home, <laughs> listeners. OK, uh, true or false, uh, Carrie is a sports journalist and she wrote a journal of the England team at the 2015 Women's World Cup called Lionesses in the Raw. Is that true? Uh, it's true. No, it was called <laughs> Roar of the Lionesses. <laughs> See, I, everything about that was, that's a trick. Yeah. <laughs> Lionesses in the Raw, Carrie, would have been a... a... very different kind of book, I feel. Well, yeah. OK, Ian, she is a fan of Luton. Yes, this is true. She likes liberating goods under the cover <laughs> of social unrest. <laughs> Absolutely. Also, the football team. OK, uh, James, Carrie has a PhD in sports psychology. Ooh, Dr Carrie Dunn. What do you think? I think she's psyching me out. She's not looking at me, so I'm going to say yes. That's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. And finally, Ian, and you at home, she's a big-time fan of wrestling and is currently working on the follow-up to spandex screwjobs and cheap pops inside the business of British pro wrestling, true or false? I'm saying true to being a fan of wrestling. I'm not having that as a book title. I'm afraid... Get out. I'm afraid the Get out. Many, many readers felt the same, but it is actually a book. (laughs) It is actually a book. And you can hear her... You, in this case, Carrie, you can hear Carrie alongside producer Ben on the Parts Unknown Wrestling podcast. Carrie, how excited are you about the Shield reunion? I'm extremely excited about the Shield reunion, but you're not going to let me talk about that today, are you? Well, what is the Shield reunion? <laughs> um, they are three wrestlers who have a faction and they fight for justice. It's exciting, honestly. Okay. Justice League. Yeah. In kind rest- of like yeah. that, but mm. in black combat, yeah. Black combat gear, that sounds very... Uh... I'm sorry, black what? Black combat gear, like vests and tactical vests. Is that their thing? Yeah. Right. Who's your favourite wrestler? Oh, at the moment, uh, probably Dean Ambrose, but of all time, CM Punk. Is it not like in football where you have uh, colours and you stay with them? Not really so much, no. OK. Yeah. Are, the, right. are the bushwhackers still a thing? I used to like the bushwhackers. The bushwhackers will always be a thing. Yeah, oh, yeah. To what extent does the uh, Venn diagram of... Uh, is the intersection there between, say, WWE or wrestling and wacky racist fans? It does sound... <laughs> 
<laughs> tremendously similar. Yeah, I think that's yeah a, a large overlap Venn okay. diagram, I think. All right. Ethel Cup, Carabao Cup. It's the competition that's now ready to have its quarterfinals, the draw for which is going to be happening this afternoon. In that draw, a West Ham who came from two goals down to beat London rival Spurs, high-flying Spurs, at Wembley. Ian McIntosh. I don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. Tottenham, it wasn't even that Tottenham blew them away so much in the first half because there wasn't really anything to blow away. They just sort of kicked through them like a pile of leaves. There was, the West Ham were just no midfield, no defence, no passion, no idea, no clue. They're angry banners from West Ham fans. Um, what were they who'd saying? Come to Wembley, um, mocking comments about the line taking the club to a next level. In, in reference to Sullivan and uh, et al. Um, and it looked like all of those banners were vindicated and justified. And then at half-time, Bilic did nothing whatsoever. No substitutions, <laughs> no tactical changes. And for ten minutes of the second half, nothing whatsoever changed. And then all of a sudden, they got one from a set-piece. Five minutes later, it was 2 all. And then they got another one from a set-piece. And Spurs just seemed to be sleepwalking straight through it. It's almost as though their manager doesn't care about the Carabao Cup. <laughs> well, while there is an element of that, it was a relatively strong side. No Harry Kane, obviously, but Deli Alley was there. And I think he did look pretty frustrated uh, at the end. It was just... They're just gone. We often hear in football that when you take your foot off the gas, when you ease back on your momentum, sometimes it's hard to get it back up again, as, as it weren't. And maybe it's just as simple as that. It was just a, a Wednesday that saw Spurs caught out. From the Hammers' point of view, lots of quotes afterwards about fight and togetherness, mm. and that this might be the sign of something. Well, yeah, you always look at, at moments like this as possible launch pads, turning points, that kind of thing. But it's not as if anything really changed. They just, I mean, two goals from two set pieces and a third. I'm not, I'm not sure if this is going to be the start of anything hugely dramatic. Mm. But I, I have been wrong in the past. Mark Noble back in the side, of course, which might have something to do with that fight and togetherness. Uh, reportedly, he led a meeting with players at the training ground on Monday. That should make him manager. Perhaps so. <laughs> uh, did you see the wonderful moment? I'm sure you did when he flung his jersey into the crowd at Wembley. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. uh, a, a very well-built gentleman came clattering across to get it and then just vanished into yeah. the depths, which went rather better than Pape Soire at Crystal Palace, who threw his shirt into the crowd only to have it tossed contemptuously back at him. Right. Well, you mentioned Palace, and of uh. course that is who West Ham are going to be facing this weekend. Just on the subject of Noble, he's the player who repeatedly we've heard should have no place in the, in the starting eleven. Is that actually wrong then? Well, again, it would be really hard to base lasting conclusions on, on a, a, on a decent thirty-five game, thirty-five minute game. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there is something about Noble which is intrinsically West Ham. Though perhaps we should look into the meanings of that statement a little deeper. All right. Hear what you're saying. Uh, Palace then, yeah, beaten four-one by Bristol City, who make their way into the quarterfinals. Another Premier League scalp uh, for the Robins. They'd previously beaten Watford. And Stoke, Mark Jenkins pointing out that once again it was an Icelandic long throw, which did for a Roy Hodgson side. Yeah, and now Bristol City have got more wins against Premier League teams than Palace have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Was this on TV? No. I was at the cinema, so I missed all of this. <laughs> you, you didn't miss too much. Well, I mean, not from a Bristol City point of view. Right. Who, who have had a really good season in the Championship. Um, there, there was... Uh, 
school of thought that uh, Lee Johnson was going to get the bullet, mm. um, that they were woefully underperforming. But they've actually had some really good results and they're in the playoff frame at the moment. So, mm. yeah, maybe not entirely unexpected. Though Roy Hodgson did make a number of changes to the team. So maybe he brought it on himself. Perhaps so. That is, though, his fifth defeat in seven games in charge of the Eagles. They've conceded 16 goals in those seven matches. What does this mean then about the Palestine that we saw transformed apparently when they took on Chelsea? Was that just a, a kind of weird coming together of events? or Because or, Newcastle since then, I don't think they had a shot on target um, and, and lost that match. Then this, which maybe not the most important competition, and now a fired up West Ham team arriving. Yeah, it's one of those one of those weird things perhaps like um like like West Ham last night kind of under dire circumstances under pressure then a team can lift themselves but if you can do it consistently that's any way you're going to string results together but doesn't it look like they can do that at the moment do you fear for them against the hammers this weekend well i wouldn't fear for anybody particularly against west ham having watched them last friday which i thought was absolutely <laughs> dreadful performance but um, oh the brighton game yeah shocking shocking match but um, yes, I guess if I was a Palace fan, I would I would be quite fearful. Andy Carroll back from suspension, as we saw in the the, the Spurs game. Palace have only beaten West Ham once in the last six matches. There's been four red cards in those in that period, so uh, it's quite tasty, isn't it? It is at Selhurst Park, though. Um, oh. You know, good partisan crowd. One of the things notable about the Chelsea game was how supportive the fans were right from the start. And as soon as they saw that reflected in the team's display. It kind of kicked off a little noise chain reaction. Mm. Um, and I think those those fans had a, a great part to play in that Chelsea victory. So possibly you get that from West Ham. But like Carrie says, I, you don't really want to put too much faith into either one of those. OK. Elsewhere in the midweek Eiffel Cup fixtures, what do you want to pick out, Ian? Oh, I don't know. Lots of, <laughs> lots of teenagers. Lots of teenagers making their debut. Yeah. You had, Arsenal's uh, Eddie Nketiah. Is that how you pronounce that, James Holmcastle? I think so. Yeah. Interesting story behind him, of course. Go on, then. <clears throat> well, he was on the books at Chelsea mm. um, and uh, was let go because he was too small. Um, yeah, and he's... they used to play him in midfield at Chelsea Did as well. Did they? Yeah. Well, he stands only at five foot seven, I believe, but that was quite the towering it's header more for than the adequate. second goal. Yeah. yeah. He, um, he came on in the 85th minute. Did you know? Thank His you. side were 1-0 down, Arsenal, uh, to Norwich. And they, uh, he, he scored 15 seconds after coming on. It was one of those amazing moments where you see him obviously warming up to come on, camera pans on him, and then it zooms out and you see him run into the penalty area to take part in this corner and just score immediately. It was my, brilliant. My one concern about this boy, though, is that as he runs off to celebrate that first goal, there's a substitute. I don't know who it was. He runs towards him to give him a hug and he just hits him like two-hand shove and shoves him like really, really hard away. Oh. And you think he's only coming for a hug? Yeah. I mean, on a basic human level, you go for a hug and it, it isn't reciprocated. Oh, was it a get away from me? It wasn't yeah, a Yeah, kind of... it was like, get out! There's my moment! Mine! Oh, wow. Like, oh, maybe cool. he doesn't like being hugged. Maybe, yeah. maybe. A lot of people don't like to be touched. First player to score for Arsenal who was born after Wenger was appointed. That's oh, remarkable, nice. isn't yeah. it? And you had a similar story at Everton as well. Yes, Ethan Ampadu. Um, had a very decent game. He came across from Exeter not long ago. They're still, I believe, haggling over the fee for that and may yet go to tribunal. But and he played for Exeter when he was 15. Right, and he was born after Phil Jagielka debuted for... <laughs> really? No, no, truly. Yeah, yeah for, uh, for Everton. He's also Kwame Ampadu's nephew. Is that right? Yes. OK. Um, also, I'm sure you want to talk about the squirrel. 
born significantly after anyone <laughs> was appointed, quite we, possibly. We don't have an age. Uh, again, one who's probably considered too small to make an impact at this level. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice, so. and that, that kind of that enlivened uh, events at the Etihad, where Man City and Wolves shared a, a goalless draw. Yeah, Wolves, the first team to frustrate Man City like that. Apart from Everton, back in game week two, I think, of the season. 1-1. Well, one, yeah, first time... To, first time oh, I see, that. you know, hold them scoreless. Uh, yeah. I beg your pardon. Yeah. Wolves also did that. That was only a mix and match team as well. It wasn't even their their strongest lineup. Wolves, yeah, and Man City of all the big teams probably had the strongest first eleven. Because they as well. actually started with Aguero and Jesus. Uh, Aguero, Jesus, Sterling, um, they're all in there. Gundogan was back, but the ball was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about the ball. Apparently, the ball was unacceptable. Mm. Um, and even though Mita then put out a statement just to say, "Well, you've had." Time to actually train with this ball. You knew you were going to be playing with it. Mm. Not good enough for Pep Guardiola and his players. To which the EFL, it should be said, have responded quite strongly, saying it's exactly the same ball that the EFL use week in and week out. There's nothing wrong with it. But City aren't in the championship. (laughs) No, this is true. Though maybe they would be if they are playing with that ball all the time. Mm. It's not a a great way to finish a game, though, is it, from Pep Guardiola? Maybe that's the way to thwart them. Just you know, throw that game in. Get one of the get one of the ball boys in the multi ball kind throw of system. Just throw the mitre in. I tell you what, it has yeah. done though. It's um, it's distracted everyone from the fact that Wolves had three or four really good chances to win that game, mm-hmm. um, denied by a series of super saves from one Claudio Bravo, extraordinary, who then pulled off two world class saves in the penalty shootout, an ABBA penalty shootout no less. Claude Puel's gone to Leicester. Carry, did you see this one coming? Um. I'm not saying that I keep that much of a track on managerial merry-go-rounds really? in, in the Premier League. Yeah, oh, I know. Right. I'm not all that bothered, to be honest. But, okay. um, Richard Keyes is bothered. Richard Keyes is bothered. <laughs> I saw that. He yeah, really cares, his doesn't tweet, he? tweet, R.I.P. British coach. A man who works <laughs> A man who works in another country. <laughs> well, he's done his bit thoughts. for the game in England by leaving, of course. But, um, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but the last foreign manager Leicester had did all right. And his name was very similar to Claude as well. Yeah, yeah. You're more likely to get subtitles, I think, with Claude Puel than than, than titles. If Ooh. I'm, yeah, because you can't hear him speak. That's what I'm saying. Whispering Claude. Whispering Claude. <laughs> but um, yeah, as John Bennett, who replies to Richard Keyes online, uh, points out, you know, he's managed at the top level 18 years as Puel. He's won a title. He's got to the Champions League semi-finals. Done great things with Ben Arthur at Nice. Yeah, I took a, a Nice side that uh, I think in the three seasons before had been either battling for relegation or been in mid-table um, to fourth place. Mm. And they didn't do like, a bad job at Southampton. Yeah, and it's not like they've suddenly picked up enormously since they let him no, go. exactly. I mean, I think uh, eighth place finish is more than respectable. Got them to right. a League Cup final as well, where they were kind of unlucky to lose. Um, so, yeah, I don't really see... Why but it is so a surprise though, isn't it? I mean, it is, because, I mean, his 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 teams, I think... They've never played particularly attractive football, and this was obviously a problem at Southampton. Um, but I think, I think at Southampton, it's it's been reported certainly in the French press that one of the reasons why he he went was not because of the kind of standard of football he was playing, but more because there was maybe sort of difference of opinion between him and people in recruitment. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, Leicester from their from their press release seemed seemed thrilled to have got a manager that like Claude Puel. The ideal profile for them. There you go. Yeah, attention to detail, knew everything about our team. He's he's got, you know, as you said, a very good track record. The one concern, though, is that his Southampton team seemed to be very much about get the ball, keep the ball. 
and then hold it for ages. I think they had um, they were ranked seventh for passes, seventh for touches um, in the season that he was in Southampton. So very much keeping the ball to themselves. Leicester are always at their best when they're the kind of clenched blue fist before suddenly going, boom, jazz hands, and then they get you on the counter. Whereas I'm right. not sure Puel is... Is that kind of manager? But hey, good luck to him. Well, his debut is an intriguing one. Ooh, I'm there. Are you going along to the yeah. King Power? Some strange ESPN punishment. I've, this is my third Everton oh, game. You've got on to the be bounce. cool to be kind. <laughs> oh. that's, that's so well done. <laughs> uh, they're taking on Everton. They are. Yeah, which you were mentioning uh, falling out with recruitment people. Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, the hidden tip of the, well, the hidden bulk of the 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 manager getting fired iceberg, and we've seen this with. With uh, I've forgotten his name already. Ronakuman, <laughs> Ronakuman, and an Everton business, isn't it? <laughs> and it's it's curious because Everton visiting Leicester. Steve Walsh, that was the club that Everton poached the transfer guru from. Yeah. And it's an interesting, a great opportunity to just say, hang on a second, wasn't he exactly the man they were supposed to have to not make colossal mistakes in the transfer market like? I think we all agree they did. Yeah, not signing a striker, which mm. Ronald Koeman's been in the papers today saying that um, that they had Olivier Giroud on a hook and ready, and then just at the last minute he pulled out and, and that's where it all went wrong. But you think, well, should it really have lasted that long? Everyone knew Lukaku was going to leave at the end of last season. Mm. Everyone knew that. So why were they still there on August 31st waiting for Giroud to sign on the dotted line? Well, yeah, I think Everton knew that all of the strikers that they were after, they were those strikers is second or third choice all the time. So that is going to happen for a club like Everton. Um, but, you know. If you have paid all of that money for this transfer guru to find you these hidden gems, you'd think, you know, maybe they'd have more options, more options than, you know, they've ended up with because they are basically four number 10s and no, hardly any wingers, hardly any strikers. Maybe, maybe he felt that the likes of Nias and, and Calvert-Lewin, who certainly scored in this game, could be the players that they needed. It was just that Koeman didn't utilise them. Well, too late. that would have been optimistic. Um, Calvert-Lewin is, is a young man of potential who's, I think, acquitted himself reasonably well. Um, but Uman Yas was in the bomb squad. Yeah. So it would have been a, a bold play to say he'll be all right for us. Though Uman Yas, of course, not now in the bomb squad and has probably finally been given the locker back. All right. Calvert-Lewin, of course, scoring midweek in the game yes. against Chelsea. Wow, all right. There were signs of life for Everton, were there? Yeah, in this by game? all accounts, there were some faces that hadn't been seen for a while. Aaron Lennon, thank goodness, is um, back in the starting lineup. Uh, there was, uh, I practiced his name beforehand. I, I want to say Benny Banning time, but it's not Banning time. <laughs> I can time. see why you want to say that. It's a great name, <laughs> Benny Banning time. But very highly rated. From uh, the Bronx or not? <laughs> <laughs> Never turn your back on him, especially not at a train station. Okay. Um, he's a very highly rated defensive midfielder. Um, so he, he got some game time. Yeah. yeah. Um, because David Unsworth, of course, was manager of the development squad, so knows these players very well. It's a very, very good time for Unsworth because there aren't really any standout candidates for this job. It's a horrible job as well. Really? Well, it's just so unbalanced, and you've got to get all the way to January before you can rectify that. So you've got high expectations, low morale, uh, big dressing room egos. It's a really difficult one to take. Oh, well, I'm bound to your greater knowledge. I wouldn't have thought the expectations were vast at the moment. And there is a lot of talent in that side, I would think. There is a lot of talent, but it's all in well, it's all in the same place. They're all attacking midfielders. Mm. I'd, I'd say that's going to be a hard one to turn around. Um, uh, Michael Cox was saying on, I think, Monday's show, 
Because I thought Sean Dyche would be a good shout. I still think Sean Dyche would be a good shout. And Coxie said, uh, quite rightly, it's not really a Sean Dyche kind of team. The obvious exception of Michael Keane. Um, and he's, he's absolutely right. Um, but it's not really anyone's kind of team. It's not like there's any manager out there who's particularly excelled with a wildly unbalanced squad. Um, so it's going to be a very, very difficult one for someone to take. Do you foresee the problems continuing then at the King Power for the Toffees this weekend? Yeah, Leicester in good shape. Michael Appleton's been a steady hand on the tiller. Uh, Ian Acho got in the goals, um, finally. Um, they're still a fairly consistent team, fairly consistent unit. Um, they've not actually been that far off the pace, even under Shakespeare. It's mm. a very harsh sacking because they weren't playing badly. So I, I don't think the new man's going to have to do much. It's this fixture that 18 months ago was preceded by Andrea Bocelli singing Nessun Dorma. And time to say goodbye, as if he knew something. As if. It's a secret message to Claudio. Well, yeah, yeah no one's sleep. I, I, I imagine neither of these teams are fans are sleeping well at the moment. Right. Yeah. There you nice. go. Hold on. <laughs> we'll just take a break and, you know, have a moment with that. And then we'll be back with an absolutely colossal clash, which is going to kick the weekend off Saturday at Old Trafford. Tweet us at The Totally Football Show. Find us on Facebook and check us out at thetotallyfootballshow.com. Hot in from the listeners. Shane Yorn says, ask Carrie, how many points are Luton going to win the league by? <laughs> oh, it's early days yet. Come on, Carrie. Quietly Which league are we talking about? League two. Where you are currently on top yeah. and you're the highest scorers in the country. By a long way, yeah. Look at that goal difference, yeah. What's your goal difference? I think it's plus 22. That's a big goal difference. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The Hatters are flying. They really are. Yeah, fantastic start to the season. Um, you scored 11 yeah. goals in your last three. 7-1 against yeah. Neighbours Stevenage. 4-1 against Exeter. And most excitingly, 0-0 against <laughs> Harry Kewell's Crawley. I would like to say uh, an optimistic prediction of, let's say, let's win the league by... Don't say it, Carrie. Nine. Nine clear Don't, points. Why would there you we say go. that? Why there would you say go. that? Just because then if we do, I can look back and say in October, I said that would happen. Yeah, there's another scenario which... <laughs> <laughs> I've absolutely jinxed it and we're completely screwed. Yes, OK. Yeah. Luton, uh, plastic pitches. Yep. Uh, man in a kind of tan suit. Yep. Uh, ooh, a checker trade trophy in 2009. <laughs> what else you got? But uh, League Cup, 1988. OK. Yeah. Andy Dibble. Andy Dibble, yeah. Andy Dibble yeah. final. Yeah, uh, the Gus Caesar final as well. <laughs> Poor Gus. Poor Gus, yeah. Mm. And the Brian Steen, two goals. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You got back in the final the following year. We did against Nottingham Forest. And then? That, that was not a good day. Uh, was, was Gus Caesar, was his first name Augustus? Yes. Yes. Augustus Brilliant. Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. Respect to his parents. Yeah. You cannot fail in life with a name like that. Andy, I think, would have been better as officer, no? <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Your manager's called Nathan Jones, so we kind of got to say you've been gone too long. Really. Yep, that's the fourth time I've had that joke made to me in the past, what, four hours? <laughs> really? I, I did one. <laughs> wow. <laughs> sorry, listeners. <laughs> OK. That's the, uh, Andy, uh, sorry. Uh, OK, well, Shane, you're on. There you go. You asked, carry answered. I'm going to carry on. Keep calm and carry on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I don't know if I'm going to keep calm because it's going to be Man United Spurs this weekend. Huge game, not least because this is going to be the teenager Marcus Rashford's last ever Premier League game at Old Trafford. If he plays. 
if he plays. Yeah. You're supposed to ask me... What <laughs> oh, my God, James, what's happened? <laughs> he, he turns 20 in a couple of days. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Uh, Man United are on lockdown and Spurs were on a roll until that League Cup upset. What's going to happen when irresistible force meets a team that's just lost to Huddersfield? <laughs> <laughs> I think we can predict quite really? easily what uh, United's game plan will be. Um, I think it was interesting to see what they did in the League Cup in midweek because they played a 3-5-2 um, with Lingard behind uh, Marshall and, and Rashford. I just wonder whether they will go to a, a system, whether it be 4-3-3 or the 3-5-2, where they have three in midfield um, for this game. Um, we saw them do that against Spurs uh, last year. Um, I just think they'll really want to kind of congest the middle or at least give couple of players in midfield that license to actually go out and push push Spurs' wing-backs out as well because I just think United, in every big game that Mourinho has played, it's always the same um, rationale of um, let's not lose this game rather than let's go win it. And I don't think that that'll change even at Old Trafford. It's a fixture that historically Spurs have really struggled with. Yeah, quite famously in one instance, which they famously lost having taken a 3-0 lead at half-time. And I think Ferguson's team talk was, lads, it's Tottenham. Mm. Oh, that's where it came from? I think so, That yeah. specific game. Fans of oversimplifying a complex uh, sport will, like me, revel in the chance to play Kane v Lukaku, top Trump <laughs> style. Lukaku's not been on the greatest run of form, actually, of no. How's, how's Harry Kane doing? Is he even going to play in this game? Because he, he didn't midweek, and there is some doubt still, I think, about whether he is better from whatever it was that took him off at the uh, weekend. That feels like um, hmm. codding. Oh, really? Yeah, I think Kane will play. I think he'll be fine. Okay. I'm basing that on nothing at all. Man United have won their last five Premier League games at Old Trafford with a clean sheet in each of those games. What do you think about that? Because I, I know that they really, we, we talked about how they lost momentum. Can they pick it up again for this one? Or as James says, do you think they're just going to sit deep and try and maybe pick off Spurs yeah, or not even try? Generally, Mourinho's plan is to wait for the other lot to make a mistake. Open um, the door. Yeah. yeah. but which, which, of course, was what he did at Liverpool, which wasn't a bad idea. He just expected Jurgen Klopp to get overexcited and swap a midfielder for a striker. Right. It's just Klopp didn't fall for it. Will Poch um, fall for it? Well, the, the problem is that if... Pochettino's playing three defenders it makes it very very difficult for Lukaku to do anything he'll be completely outnumbered um, which is, has happened a few times this season so Mourinho's going to have to offer some kind of support to Lukaku without actually leaving it too open and you know which way Mourinho falls when it comes to a balance like this he'll always take the safety option mm, OK we did have that question on Monday about whether Man United would, would score in the month of October again. <laughs> they, they will, and they'll be fine. And it's all getting a bit overplayed because they had an absolute stinker against Huddersfield and a ploy didn't work a, a, against Liverpool. They'll, they'll be fine. I'd probably put this down as a draw, though. Sounds fair. James? I fancy Spurs. Ooh. Do you? Yeah, I do. I, I think... I, I think Mourinho will again get his comeuppance in a in a in a top six game. I think it would be very interesting to see um, who's fit from a United perspective. Um, whether, for example, we do see Jones and Bailly, um come back into the side. Um, if it's Lindelof, then I think that record of five straight wins and five straight clean sheets for United will come under some some scrutiny. So, um, so yeah, I, I actually I, I fancy Spurs to win this. One. Okay, yeah. Carrie, do you have any strong feelings about this? I think United will win, though. I think they're legit. 
On, on what basis? On gut feeling, based right. on, you know, the Ian McIntosh gut feeling, complete instinct, based on nothing. No. Okay. Never gone wrong before. <laughs> Excellent. So Man United to win and Luton to take League Two by nine points. <laughs> That's Put what we've got so far. Yeah. West Brom, meanwhile, are taking on Man City. Quick check on the stats. City on their joint best points return after nine games of a Premier League season. 32 goals scored, eight wins out of nine. Just that draw with Everton. West Brom, two wins in 18 under Tony Pulis. Kerry, as a doctor of sports psychology, what would you say to the Baggies ahead of this clash at the Hawthorns? Oh, goodness. I don't think I'll be the expert here. I think Tony Pulis will do it. Um, In terms of getting a team G'd up to play City, I don't think you need to do a team talk for that kind of thing. That speaks for itself. Okay. Because the pressure obviously isn't going to be on West Brom, is it? Right. Do you think it's Man City that need the team talk? I I would imagine they would need more of a wake-up for it than West Brom would. Because I think it would be quite easy to go into that quite complacently. What would you say, lads, it's West Brom? Lads, it's West Brom, (laughs) basically, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's a tricky thing, isn't it? What is the best way to get into an underperforming footballer's head? It depends on the footballer. It depends on the team dynamic. It depends on the managerial style. So all the different things would feed into that. Okay. That's a really boring answer, but it, it's, it's true. What's the most important thing you've learned in the field of sports psychology? It's kind of, yeah, I, my work is kind of more in the kind of sociology side of things. So mm-hmm. the kind of the way that things actually pan out rather than the actual psychology side of it. Oh, rather than actual practical. But it's kind of the experience of people and the way that those experiences are, are different. So that's kind of what I'm saying about the team talks. Right, like it the, depends in, the on individual the stuff is the most important of stuff. Of course. Okay. If you came into this pod and thought <laughs> they're underperforming, you know the individuals here now. What would you say? In, you know, obviously in private in a quiet room. But <laughs> what, what would you say to me? For oh well, I wouldn't ever say that to you because obviously you're not underperforming, James. I can't even imagine a world in which that would happen. So that's a way of saying that Ian and I are underperforming. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think yeah. she thinks I am, and that's just her way of because she sees attention or something. I don't know. Yeah. You can never know with these people. <laughs> They're in your head. Anyway, uh, ooh, it's their second clash this week, of course, against the team from the black country, off to walls, and the first one didn't exactly go the way they'd anticipated, so West Brom... Yeah, I can't see that happening. Uh, West Brom are in a very bad place. Those two wins they've got were both in August, first game and second game. They haven't won since then. Um, The fans are turning and turning hard, not for the first time, because this happened uh, last season as well. They started slowly, um, and Pulis was getting an awful lot of flack. But it is happening again now, and it's hard to see how he's going to turn it around. Um, This has been a thing with, with Tony Pulis over his career. He's very good at building a team up, building a defence, making them hard to beat. And when it comes to the next stage, that's where it starts to wobble. I'm, who can forget him buying uh, Tunchai for Stoke in the hope that that would be you know, the, the burst of creativity they needed? It, it was not. Um, and there's a similar thing happening here with Chadley, who hasn't really worked out. Ollie Burke, who's been signed and has barely appeared. Um, it's just they're not kicking on. And right now it's... Uh, not even a case of not kicking on. They're not doing what they're supposed to. Seven goals in nine games is appalling. Um, and I don't think he's going to get any here either. I'd right. put this 3-4-0 for City. Really? Mm. OK. Do you want some more Premier League or some questions for some answers? What do you think? Let's go with some questions. Let's have some questions. Yeah. This isn't the question, but this is Nijibinho who flags up for us a Turkish clash 
between Ella Zigspor and Samsonspor. Samsung Sport. Yeah, Samsung Sport. It finished 2-2. Sonna Shyan was the only name on the score sheet. He scored a brace for the home side and did the two own goals for the visitors as well. That's brilliant. As Nejibinho says, surely this guy must be a shoe-in for man of the match. Uh, also this week, Malvolio asked the question, which would be the most light brigade-like team in Premier League history? He suggests Keegan's Newcastle. Of course, it was the anniversary of the ill-fated cavalry charge. Only, well, I think on Wednesday, was it? Or maybe Tuesday? Uh, Andrew Muller says, Ardiles Tottenham, surely. What are you thinking? Oh, yeah, definitely. Five yeah. five forwards. Mm. Um, it actually started really well. They won their first Much two like games. Much like charge of the library. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lads, we've got loads bit. of horses. We'll yeah. be fine. And on into the valley. Um, no, they, they beat Sheffield Wednesday 4-3, where Jürgen Klinsmann did the famous dive mm. celebration. They beat Everton 2-1, where Jürgen Klinsmann did a flying overhead scissor kick. Okay. And then it went really, really, really wrong. It's a shame, really. Could have revolutionised football had it worked. Yeah. Just ahead of his time, probably. No, I think now, with the defending now, he'd be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Time for a comeback. Navin says, can you talk about MLS on the show? Uh, this is prompted by Vancouver beating... Did you shake your head, Carrie? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so wrestling's all right, but honest athletes running around... <laughs> Engaged in a proper, authentic, yeah, 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 etc. Anyway, Vancouver beat San Jose 5-0 today and we usually play like a Pulis side, says Navin. They've done well. They've made the playoffs, Vancouver, despite not really being able to keep the ball and relying on counter-attacks and set pieces. Meanwhile, Navin continues, James, the Eastern Conference has been blazing with Toronto setting records and Tata Martino's Atlanta, the neutral choice. Overall, it's been a very exciting season. Andrew Lang says, what does the pod think of 70,000 fans turning out to see Atlanta United in the coolest stadium ever built? Have you seen the Mercedes-Benz Stadium? It's a, it's a beautiful... Is that where the Falcons play as well? I, yeah, it probably is. It is an amazing-looking stadium. It's got little yeah. kind of triangle things around the roof, It's almost like it? petals. I thought yeah. petals myself. I'm not sure if that was what the... But anyway, yeah, they had a 2-2 draw there with Toronto... Uh, which featured uh, Altidore continuing his scoring streak and Javinko. Somebody threw, a, I think it was a glass of beer at them mm. and Javinko picked it up and... Was it bigger than him? <laughs> <laughs> Is he still, even now, trapped underneath it? Stop. <laughs> that's, that's cheap. He, he had a swig and then he threw it back and Altidore said something about, he's my man. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was proper kind of bants. Excellent. Oh, it's terrific. Attendances are absolutely skyrocketing. Yeah, in in the states, and Nevin, I've got to say, we're going to have a special MLS correspondent up very soon, just to cover this uh, remarkable postseason that's uh, that's in prospect there. In the meantime, Balaz Foldvari uh, would be interested to hear our views on the recent failings of Dutch football. You can by just having a little look at our back catalogue and the one where Simon. Cooper does a fantastic job of explaining what's gone wrong, according to him. Fred the Leopard says, with England kids in the World Cup final, it's the under-17s going on in India, of course, and other youth teams doing well, as well as the women, what is up with England football? Well, Fred, it's a fantastic question. We're going to tackle it a little bit later on in today's show. Boom. My name, as if you didn't know, is James Horncastle, and although I keep my hair long, I like to keep my beard short. And when it comes to shaving, I insist on Cornerstone. Cornerstone takes all the hassle out of shaving. You'll never run out of blades again. Just let them know how often you shave, and they'll take care of the rest. Get £10 off your first order, and find out more about your perfect shave box at cornerstone.co.uk 
forward slash totally. Coming back at you with some more exciting games from this weekend, Kerry Dunn. Uh, Oh, Arsenal taking on Swansea. Last season, this game featured everything pretty much. There was a topsy-turvy 3-2 scoreline. There was a red card for Granite Shacker. There was Bob Bradley in the dugout. Do you remember that? I do remember that now. Yeah. Funny, because I'd forgotten. Yeah. But it happened. Uh, Arsenal beat Norwich midweek. Swansea got beaten by Man United. doesn't really matter. It was the League Cup. Renato Sanchez. I've got to hold my hands up and say, I thought he was going to have an impact in South Wales. But he hasn't, James. (laughs) No, it seems to have gone completely backwards. Lost a lot of confidence, I think, over the last uh, year. Um, I think... uh, Bayern would be expecting that their former assistant manager, Paul Clement, would be able to um, get him back to his old self. But if you see Paul Clement as maybe an extension of Carlo Ancelotti, maybe it was the wrong person to send him to. But um, no, I think it's, it is disappointing, particularly given the impact that he made um, in, that, uh, in his one real... I mean, you have to remember he had one season, really, in, in, uh, in top-flight football with Benfica. Um, yeah, then was a, a breakout start at the Euros. But again, that was a Portugal team that I think you might say didn't really have any stars. Even even with Ronaldo, it was uh, it was a Ronaldo who played well against Hungary in that European champ- Championship group stage match, and then was probably their manager uh, in the final. So um, so yeah, it's it's it is a bit of a disappointment. But it's a long way to go, Jimbo. We're only end nine games into the season, so let's give him a chance. In his defence, he was much improved against Leicester. I mean, not not to the point that he was man of the match or anything, but he at least looked slightly more than competent. What was he doing? Uh, running a lot, mm-hmm. which was good because he's been blowing out of his bottom after about 30 minutes every game I've seen him so far. So he actually looked like he had a bit of fitness building up. And, and doing that thing that Renato Sanchez does, which is pick up the ball and stride forward about 10 yards while he's thinking about what to do with it. All right. I wonder what Arsene Wenger's saying about Mesut Ozil. Yeah. Is, is he an Ozil lover? I'm not sure. But he, we, we, we raved about him on Monday, of course. He created eight goal-scoring chances against Everton. Did you see that continuing? Was that a one-off? How do you stand on Ozil, Kerry? I really like Ozil. I love to watch him play. I think he's just an amazing player to watch. But I can understand why Arsenal fans might have slightly different opinions about him. They need a scapegoat most of the time, I don't they? I think that's exactly what it is. And I can see why he would be an easy target. But no, I, I love to watch him play as a neutral. Mm. I think he's a fantastic player. What about then Liverpool taking on a Huddersfield team who've already humiliated one Northwestern footballing giant? Now for the other one? Friends forced to fight one another. Oh, what's this? Jurgen Klopp and Star David Wagner. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. One was the best man. Well, Wagner was best man at Klopp's wedding, wasn't so it? So that was your Captain James T. Kirk impression? Yeah. Can yeah. we hear it again? Friends forced to fight one another. Okay. Um, do, do you have an impression you'd like to do? What, from Star Trek? It could be from anything. <laughs> um, Carry your next, by the way, just in case. Friends. No. <laughs> Not bad. Is that yeah. Sean Connery? Not bad. Yeah. Uh, Carry? I don't have any impressions, okay. I'm sorry. I think leave that to Ian. Right. It's, it's actually, I think that was Jim Carrey from The Cable Guy, because I did watch the Star Trek episode where they go down to a planet based on the Roman Empire and Spock yeah. and Kirk have to fight, and they never use those words. So I think it's Jim Carrey. All right. Anyway. Have you ever thought of um, taking up drama, Ian? (laughs) I asked this because I've just been prompted by producer Ben who said that originally you wanted to be an actor rather than a football journalist. I tossed a coin over my UCAS book. 
Seriously? Yeah, 1996, I tossed a coin. This is a bit Andrew Dice Clay, isn't it? You based your entire career path over that flip of a coin. Well, I figured what would happen is if I tossed it and it came up on something and I went, oh, best of three, (laughs) best of three, then then I would know, so that's why I was doing it. Okay. But it came up journalism and uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Have Have you ever based an important life decision on a completely random circumstance? I have not. I think things through much too carefully. Okay. James, I know you haven't. You were born to do one thing, <laughs> and you're doing it. Anyway, we were talking about Liverpool-Huddersfield. Mm. I don't know what happened there. Liverpool's terrible defence, of course. Uh, back up, back up, because it's not. When they're at home, they've only conceded one goal so far. Yeah, and back there, I mean, you would uh, assume he would come uh, to the defence of his uh, of his um, of Klopp, his former roommate at Mainz. He says, um, "I don't know what everyone's getting so you know bothered about with Liverpool. You know, they play." Uh, football, which is cinema at its best, Jimbo. Cinema? Yeah. I mean, what kind of genre of cinema he means, I don't know. But um, Disaster movie? Yeah. Horror? Comedy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, a bit, they're, they're much better at home, defensively. Yes. 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 I mean, they are. The numbers say so. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, they don't necessarily seem more convincing, but they are. Is that right? Well, teams will be less inclined to come at them quite so much, you'd think, at Anfield, though it's never really stopped him in the past. Um, I do think this is a very difficult one for Liverpool. Um, Huddersfield uh, will kind of invite you into their lair and then squash you. They kind of... they. Well, <laughs> you say that, and I, I do take your point, but they had one... But they, that, that victory over Man United was their first win in six matches. Yeah, and actually, So they hadn't been doing much squashing in their lair of late. No, they'd only scored one in the previous six games yeah. as well. So there was obviously a deepening confidence issue. But at the start of the season... Right. When you could see them in a more pure sense, what they do is they let you come into their half. Um, they don't press until you cross the halfway line, and then they're on you like dogs. And terriers. Yeah, yeah, yeah very mm. much like terriers. Yeah. But, so, yeah. But the last uh, Huddersfield manager to beat Liverpool in 1959 was Bill, Bill Shankly. Oh, and then three nice. days later, he became Liverpool manager. So maybe, maybe uh, Wagner will be replacing Klopp on Frankly, Monday. Friends <laughs> forced to fight against each other. Um, so, this is, and Huddersfield, that soaking you up type thing, I mean, mm. that's going to work well against all the Cuchinos and etc. Well, you, you thought that. I mean, it depends what they do going forward because, of course, you'd have thought that worked well for Manchester United, who have a lot more kind of attacking uh, prowess than, uh, than Huddersfield and just chose not to use it. Right. Yeah. Depends if Klopp opens the door. If he opens the yeah. door. We can't move on without talking about Aaron Moy, Kerry, and the boy. Yeah, so a small child found a fiver uh, on the way out of the match and wrote to the club to say, could they please give it to Aaron Moy because he played so well and because he scored a goal. And Brilliant. Yeah, so sweet. Did Aaron Moy respond? He did on Twitter. Oh, what did he say? He tweeted the club and said, can we find this little boy? I'd like to meet him, invite him to the club. See if he's got any more money. (laughs) I'm not sure that was the intent. I think perhaps it was a slightly nobler gesture than that. Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. Of course, uh, he was a big part of that huge win against Man United last weekend. It's going to be an interesting clash, that, isn't it? Uh, What else we got this weekend? Watford taking on Stoke. Ooh, Potters have won their last three against the Hornets, but they really need to add to that collection now because they're only goal difference outside the bottom three. How much danger, Ian, do you think Mark Hughes is in? Well, he's got a patient board. They don't tend to sack very easily. Um, he's got a little bit of credit, particularly with them, to draw on in that he's 
you know, for all that last season was disappointing, it wasn't really a relegation battle. So I think I think he's got a little bit of time, um, but he is starting to lose the faith of the supporters. They've only won one game since that win over Arsenal, a, a win which they got with something like two point three percent of possession or something. Mm. Um, the, the, there hasn't been an awful lot there. Now, to a certain extent, there's some gelling in of new players, but. It's not like it's been wholesale changes over the summer. You you would expect a little more. But this will be a really hard game. Watford Watford should have beaten Chelsea. I know you discussed it on Monday, but Rich Arlison, he, he should have finished that game sometime before the hour mark. Watford are a really good side. And again, I want to take this opportunity to apologise for tipping them for relegation. Mm. Well, Worst defence so in the league, sorry. Stoke. I mean, obviously that in part is influenced by... Their performance against City, um, but you know when they brought in what Vimmer, um, Zuma, um, you'd reasonably expect them to be doing a little bit better um, at the back than they are. Darren Fletcher as well, mm. who was one of their better players in the opening part of the season. You know, you you shouldn't be shipping twenty goals and nine games if you've got Darren Fletcher protecting a three-man defence. Mm. Well, he's of course previously had problems keeping it tight at the back. <laughs> 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 when he had that chronic bowel condition, we laugh, but he's tremendous. He's actually in line to make his 101st consecutive start this weekend, which, given that we all thought he was going to retire, is absolutely terrific. There you go. Other matches this weekend, well, there's Bournemouth taking on Chelsea. Chelsea have won 3-1 and 4-1 on their last two visits to the Vitality. Well, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Callum Wilson. A word for Callum Wilson. Oh, yeah, go on. Um, who was the uh, the goal scoring force behind their initial promotion to the Premier League? Then did his ACL. Of course, came back, did his ACL all over again, um, and he's now made his comeback into the team. Scored one and made one in midweek in the League Cup. So it would be a heart of stone that didn't want him to get back in the uh, back in the first team. And given that Bournemouth can't seem to score goals. It's probably a good time for it. Okay, should Batshuayi start for for Chelsea? Yeah, definitely. He's great fun. Okay. Good. He won't now. No, of course he won't. A <laughs> oh. couple of former Chelsea players who can uh, prove a point, perhaps, to their former club. Uh, Nathan Aki and uh, Azmir Begovic. Just adding a little bit to the tension at the Vitality Stadium ahead of that game. Tension too at the Amex as Brighton take on Saints. You saw Brighton, didn't you, Carrie, mm. against that terrible West Ham side last Friday. Was it a terrible West Ham side or was it just a brilliant Brighton? Brighton were good. They were excellent going forward. Um, again, they didn't have that much to kind of go against because West Ham was so so horribly poor. But in terms of kind of set pieces, in terms of what they were doing down the wings, really impressive attacking side. So, yeah, a good team to watch. And um, I'm surprised they haven't scored more goals than they actually have, actually, looking at the table in How front of me How many goals is now. it now? Is it four or something? And they scored nine. Oh, nine. All right, OK. That's quite so, a lot. You'd say uh, the wing play, but it was up the middle. Of course, Sufian Buffal had his wonderful, wonderful run. Interesting to see what he comes up with. And for fans of a Monday night game of football, how about a bit of Burnley against Newcastle? Sean Dyche, the very in-demand Sean Dyche against the probably equally in-demand, if truth be told, Rafa Benitez. It's going to be an interesting game. They're both in the top half. Seventh and eighth, yeah. Just wow. uh, one point separating these two teams. Both teams have only been beaten once in their last five games. It's going to be a huge match, that, at Turf Moor. Yeah, it's going to be... Um, I mean, they're, they're kind of similar in that they don't make many mistakes. They have a very uh, firm structure. They don't... You know, they, everyone knows exactly what their job is. Everyone knows exactly what their expectations are. So it's got nil-nil written all over it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. 
Excellent. That is the Premier League weekend plus a Monday game. We're going to take another quick break and then let's talk about the Under-17 World Cup. How about that Under-17 World Cup, eh? Over in India. Mention how England were in that semi-final against Brazil. They only went and beat the mini Selecao 3-1. And again, it was Rian Brewster, another hat-trick. Uh, in, he got all three goals. That's seven now for the, the tournament. Yeah, I hope he hasn't scored, you know, used all his goals up because there's a big final against Spain Yeah. Um, on, what, Saturday afternoon? They've been there before, haven't they, the under-17s? Mm. They faced them in the finals of the European Championship earlier this summer, in May, in fact. It was an absorbing 2-2 draw, but then the Spanish won on penalties. There's a late goalkeeping error as well that, that let the penalty shootout in, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We did win a penalty shootout in this tournament against Japan, which is you know, a mark of considerable progress. Knowledge yeah. from James Horncastle. Yeah. Uh, what's going on with England football? Because this is the second World Cup final this year. The under-20s have already won theirs. Mm. You had England's representative team for whatever the category is for the Toulon tournament winning that. Uh, the under-19 European Championships, that was won by England. It's a clear-sighted leadership of the Football Association. <laughs> no, were you having a... No, it's, uh, they're the people in charge. We had a go at them, and rightly so, for the way they've handled other matters. But when was it that they started on St George's? 2008? That was when it was recommissioned after being mothballed in 2000. They opened again in 2012. D- disappointing World Cup in 2008, followed by lots of calls for a radical rethink. We need a German approach, a French approach, whatever. Well, in- Is it a coincidence that... Almost 10 years on, we're suddenly starting to get a, a series of, of youth teams that are the best in the world. Well, the, there was a move finally just to stop copying and come up with the, the English DNA, um, which was across all levels. and Politics. You know, <laughs> it was supposed to be more of a, you know, we'll run really hard and work really hard, but also pass the ball and basically do a bit of everything. We'll cover all bases. Um, but that was working alongside the kind of more constructive route of extensively training coaches within one system um, across all levels to help avoid that awful statistic that comes up every time England get knocked out of a tournament. It's like Germany have 28,000 trained coaches, Spain have 26,000 and England have three. Right, and one of them but the number is go- has gone up. Yeah, the number's going up, the standard of coaching is going up. So, um, And I also suspect lessons are being learned. It wasn't that long ago when foreign scouts... Um, and coaches would be laughing at all the England teams at every age level because all the all the other nations' teams would be turning up. They'll be in sort of three-star hotels or affordable dormitories and all piling onto a minibus. And then England would come in with nutritionists and masseuses and five-star hotel, booking the entire floor, and then get knocked out in the first knockout stage. Um, so I, I suspect lessons have been learned on a number of levels, though not perhaps PR-wise. <laughs> Possibly not. But something seems to be going very, very yeah. right. Or it could just be one of those weird coincidences, like with Belgium. Yes, indeed. These things are cyclical. Is this going to pass on into the national side? There, I asked it. <laughs> well, it depends if these players get game time at right. senior level for their clubs in the Premier League. Because um, the roll call of people who are successful at this level and then go on to do it four or five years later is, is pretty small. Mm. And uh, I think, yeah, this is maybe one of the reasons why we're seeing some of these players go and move to move from Chelsea, for example, mm. because um, yeah, they don't 
um, we, we, they don't see opportunity for them there. Um, yeah, it's you, know, you look. You'd think if, if you are a Liverpool, if if you go to Liverpool, under Klopp, someone who's got a track record of bringing young players through, similar with Pochettino at Spurs, then you will get an opportunity at Chelsea, even though they clean up when it comes to youth league um, and every kind of trophy at that level. Those players do not seem to get um, the look in that they perhaps feel they deserve. Ryan Brewster, for example, mm. top scorer in the tournament with seven exactly. goals, joined Chelsea was in eight when he was eight and then left for Liverpool when he was 16. Mm. So, well, another real prospect for Liverpool then. Anyway, that's all tremendously exciting and it's Saturday afternoon, is it, the game? Yes. Wow. All right. Uh, speaking of FIFA events, of course, London was a uh, host of the best awards and blah, 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 etc. and so on. But, Carrie, there was much controversy in the women's section of this. Why? Oh, there's always controversy Good. about the women's section of the FIFA best awards. Um, so, first of all, the uh, shortlisting process is very, very strange. And so when the initial uh, list came out and Carly Lloyd had been nominated and the debate uh, amongst women's football followers was basically... Do the people who actually vote on this watch women's football or are they naming the most famous players they can think of? Because Carly Lloyd, for all her many, many great qualities, didn't have a vintage year. And uh, she actually got nominated, I think, shortly after she got sent off for violent conduct for Man City, which was you know, fairly hilarious in terms of kind of the timing. So there was that. Um, also, in terms of the actual award ceremony, uh, Emma Hayes, the Chelsea manager, didn't actually get an invite and she was nominated for Coach of the Year. Ah. Um, she tweeted yesterday morning and she said, I didn't even know this was happening. And everyone was like, are you serious? She's like, yeah, no, no one told me this was happening. Wow. So, um, yeah. <laughs> That's not just good. Think of all the hangers-on, people who weren't even nominated who got got invites it's scandalous and if you also look at the budget that they spend on yeah. doing the FIFA Best Awards and then compare it to their FIFA budget on women's football globally what's the comparison uh, Carrie? it's about the same wow in one night as they do on women's football globally for the whole year about the same biggest live event at the Palladium since uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Australia Sam Kerr that was another thing uh, not making the short list despite scoring a record 17 goals in the North American yeah um, Sam Kerr's had a fantastic fantastic year she's a great player um and i think she gets slightly hard done by in terms of kind of global exposure because the nwsl doesn't have a fantastic uh, right. media presence i mean there's streaming but i think that's that's part of it but she's she's not a big name she's not from one of the big football countries in inverted commas although so. she did get three against brazil just she before the, the short list was whittled down no, sorry the long list was whittled down so you she, think yeah you, you think people would notice, but yeah, they don't. She, she says, I'm not surprised, really. It's FIFA. <laughs> <laughs> She's not wrong, is she? Yeah. Mm. All right. And nominated in her place, intriguingly, was the Venezuelan teenager, Denia Castellanos, who hasn't played for their under-20s, let alone the full national side, which has caused a bit of a... Of surprise, yeah, Carrie. We've we've had a lot of negative stories about women's football since you know, the events of the summer. So let's put a bit more positive spin because there's tremendous growth going on. There really is. Um, uh, yeah, I mentioned kind of slightly scornfully the amount of investment that's being put in globally, and it's not big money when you kind of compare it. But compared to what it was 
to women's football investment previously, it's a huge increase. So there's that. Participation is growing hugely, um, particularly in England. I mean, mm. they, they keep saying that they want to make it the, the top participation sport. So, is that because of the WSL or because better grassroots stuff or what? I think it's a combination of the two. I think it's more easily accessible now and there's not the same kind of macho stigma around playing football that there was once upon a time. However, I should kind of add a caveat to that, is that the FA have actually planned a new restructure for the Women's Super League. Oh, so WSL 1 will be full-time pros, WSL 2 won't be, and then they're going to restructure the National League underneath that. And I suspect there might be some clubs that are no longer going to be kind of the top semi-pro side of things because they're going to be rationalising. So that might be a concern in a couple of years, but mm. you know, forward thinking is not one of the strengths of the governing bodies. So. With, with three rounds into the, the current Super League 1 season... Man City and, and Chelsea both on nine points. Man City just lost, well, back in the summer, lost Tony Duggan, one of their most famous players, to Barcelona. Is that sign of kind of a, a change in the kind of geopolitics of the women's game? Yeah, um, Spain are really investing in, in, their, in their domestic side. So Barcelona and Real, and they're kind of looking to invest in having a decent women's team, which they haven't really been looking at doing before. Same's happening in, happening in Italy as well, with Juventus really looking to boost their women's sides. We have uh, Paige Williams is overplaying for Brescia and Verona for a couple of seasons too. And I think in the women's game, because there's not quite so much money swirling about Going abroad to earn your living mm. is a much more attractive option. People aren't willing, aren't kind of giving up a good salary at home necessarily. This is their chance to play pro, learn a language, and you know, further their careers in a way that perhaps they won't get to do at home. So Very nice. it's quite exciting. How long do you think before we might see uh, women managers in the men's game a crossover there? We've seen mending oh, yeah, with mixed results, uh, the, the, the women's game. But in in Italy and France, certainly, what Claremont had, uh, what was her name? Corinne Diacre. And that worked out re- reasonably well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think she's she had a had a decent record there. Seems to have gotten very well. I mean, I know she talked quite a lot about kind of the challenges that she personally would face before she took the job. But uh, mm. yeah, I think it's 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 a it would be a brave thing to do. I think in particularly in England. I mean, we're still seeing kind of you know female doctors, for example, at clubs getting certain amounts of stick. Uh, mm. I know that, uh, I can't remember what club it was, but there was a non-league incident for the female physio uh, last weekend. So there are still women on coaching teams who are still getting stick. So I think a woman manager, you know, being kind of the face of the club, would face a lot of stick it, in England it still. It was mooted uh, seven or eight years ago, I think, and Hope Powell got linked to the Grimsby job. Right. Um I, I don't think it was met with universal approval from the Grimsby fans, but it would have been funny because she would have been replacing Mike Newell, who, of course, had <laughs> some, <laughs> some very loud opinions on that front. Uh, in Italy, Carolina Maracci, that was, when was that? Back in the noughties, no? Mm, I think so, but now we've seen, what, Patrizia Panico go from being the coach of the um, of the ladies' team uh, to being uh, coach of the under-16s, uh, the boys. Okay. So, yeah, so she was... Yeah. Uh, so, little by little, mm. you know, but the, the, the pace leaves a little bit to be desired, but things are happening. Super. Hey, speaking of Italy, had a big, big midweek round of games there, James, 34 goals scored, but I don't think really we can talk about that without addressing our friends at Lazio. Oh, they're not our friends, Jimbo. Yeah, just <laughs> just when they were beginning to get likeable again, Lazio. Yeah, I think that's a, a real shame because this team is genuinely likeable uh, with uh, Simone Inzaghi as, as manager doing a great job. And yeah, even the likes of Lucas Leiva going over there. Um, got some really good players uh, at Lazio. And it's just a shame that 
um, some of their fans and also their owner have brought shame uh, on on this club. So last weekend, mm-hmm. Lazio's fans who were occupying the Curva Sud of the Stadio Olimpico, which they share with Roma, because their own end was banned for because of racist behaviour, left little cards behind with uh, pictures of Anne Frank in a, in a Roma jersey. It's a kind of... Which is just an appalling thing, but it's not a new concept. Uh, there's been loads of banners suggesting all sorts of things about Holocaust and yeah. not only Holocaust, but using the, the notion of someone being Jewish as a profound insult. Um, yeah, and 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 that's yeah the Iriducibili, the ultra group at Lazio, who kind of are the bosses of the Curva Nord, released a kind of statement um, after after this story broke, saying. You know, associating someone with a religion is it, there's nothing wrong with that. It's like, well, you know, by by associating with with uh, a Holocaust victim, it's very clear what your intention was there. Mm. Um, and I think this this is just an absolutely horrifying incident because, as you mentioned, the Curva Nord, where the Lazio Ultras sit, was closed because there was racist chanting at the Lazio Sassuolo game. The club announced an initiative whereby they would. Uh, open up the Curva Sud for the game against Cagliari at uh, the weekend, which was a We Fight Racism initiative. You could go along, pay one euro, and you could still support the team. So they got around um, this uh, closure of the Curva Nord by doing that, which is why they're under investigation at, at the moment. Obviously, the Lazio um, fans, and what's, again, just terrible about this story is they've obviously identified who was involved from the CCTV in the Curva Sud, and uh, there are about 20 people identified, among whom putting these um, stickers on the walls and the plexiglass was a, a father of three uh, with, with kids who I think were aged 13, 16 and 17 um, doing this. I mean, just the, how, how anyone would go about doing that and allow that example to be set is just terrible. Mm. And then, then yeah, it all it all unraveled even further. Yeah. So first In, of all, Claudio Latito, the Lazio president, organises this trip to the, the kind of Holocaust memorial with a wreath, mm-hmm. uh, which he then, it's claimed, says that's the kind of theatrics we have to do. Yes. this uh, We have to put on a show. Um and Lazio's players in, in the midweek game were wearing, as indeed, I think everywhere were they in City? Well, I think that the league and the, uh, and the Italian Football Federation do deserve some credit for right. how they've reacted and come out very strongly, as, as they should, mm. um, against this. Um, for example, all of the, the players, as they come out before the game, um, they have a, a copy of Anne Frank's diary and Primo Levi's If This Is A Man. They read an excerpt from uh, Anne Frank's diary. They then give the uh, the books to the 22 mascots who accompany them onto the field. As you mentioned, though, Lutito, the owner of Lazio, he went to the, the, the synagogue in Rome's um, Jewish ghetto um, or the, the morning after this story broke and uh, and and said he was it, it, I think his words just ring so hollow now because he was saying that he, he was going to announce these initiatives whereby Lazio would organize for young Lazio fans to go um, to Auschwitz um, and uh, and see everything that that happened there as part of their education um, and instead yeah this this audio emerged um, in which you know he clearly, had very little time for it and just was doing it as a very hollow PR exercise. Um, and um, it wasn't too much of a surprise to then see the wreath that Lazio had uh, taken to the, to the synagogue be thrown into the, to the river Tiber. Mm. Um, but um, 
yeah, absolutely dreadful. Um, By and large, the one positive is the fact that there has been a national outcry about this. Yeah. But classically, Juve's uh, fans, who have some history themselves, uh, came out with a communique, as ultras in Italy do, a little press release saying that they, they considered it all a wild overreaction to just essentially some banter. Well, yeah, and I saw Ascoli's fans as well in, in Serie B. They decided to come in only after... Uh, the minute silence that was held um, to, uh, to 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 it's astonishing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's 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 truly disgusting. Now, would you uh, say that's because of anti-Semitism or the feeling among ultras that you cannot touch our right to express ourselves in whatever way we want? Well, to? Exactly. I mean, uh, th- there is that um, and, because and it is a tribal thing. I mean, and within the different clubs within the de- leagues, the the allegiances to clubs represent tribes. Mm. But as a collective, the the fight against uh, the various problems with ultras has only increased their sense of a of belonging to a, a movement. Yeah, very much kind of them against us, um, and that you know if we were not called Lazio, for example, this story uh, would never have gotten the attention that it's got, which I think is a load of rubbish. Yeah, uh, frankly, um, yeah, they they've put out a, a communique ex- expressing a, a number of excuses that you know, yes. Other fans have done this. Um, yeah, it's not the first time that Anne Frank's name has been used. Um, but that does not, for any means, uh, does not by any means excuse what um, what happened. And uh, the continued use of, of, of anti-Semitic, racist language. We saw, we saw a rally. Uh, I use the word rally because <laughs> uh, I think it's appropriate uh, for Hellas Verona Ultras in the summer, which was like... I mean, it, it was it was like something from the the 1930s in in Germany. It was un- unbelievable, mm. um, and yeah, you'd like that. Statistically, incidents like this are going down um, because of the measures that have been put in place. But there are still very high profile measures. I think it's fair to point out, as you did um, touched upon earlier, that I think there's a tendency outside of Italy to think that they just turn the other they um, they look away they bury their heads in the sand they sweep it all under the cup no this this always does end up not only in the sports page but on the front page of the broadcast uh, on the on the, the national papers it leads the national news as it should um but these incidents keep happening yeah. and it's um yeah it's awful all right it is awful uh, a midweek round completely overshadowed by that 34 goals scored uh, some, some incredible goals. Some by Benevento as well, most incredibly. <laughs> the They've worst. lost every single game this season. They so nearly got their first point. The worst team ever, um, yeah. James. Yeah, they've lost ten, all ten games. Um, and, uh, yeah, now they're, bec- they're, they're becoming a byword for being bad. This is what the mayor of Benevento has said. You know, people are going around saying, oh, it's not that bad. We could be Benevento. Um, Andres Taramachoni, remember him? He mm. used to be coach of Inter. He's in charge of Sparta Prague now. And he attracted some criticism from um, the people of Benevento because Sparta, I think, lost at the weekend. They said, "Come on, it could be could be worse. We could, we could be Benevento," <laughs> which didn't go down very well. So, yeah, their fairy tale has, has quickly become a nightmare. Billy Hush says, "Will they go zero zero thirty eight for the season?" I think the problem for Benevento at the moment is they're missing some of their best players, like Ciciretti, um, Della Sandro, and their captain. Um, you know, I think suffered an injury. And the physio gave him something to deal with that injury, and he's he failed an anti-doping test. Brilliant. So thanks, physio. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, quick 
couple of things before we round up. Koku Fetigist says, which goal did James enjoy more yesterday? The Bernadeschi goal for Juve or the, uh, the 2-1 of Dries Mertens? It's got to be the Mertens, though. I mean, they're both outstanding. Goals. No, but what Mertens does to that, that long ball over the top, mm. I don't think I've seen a stop like that before. No, I stopped it. I mean, it's, it's, I would, they were talking about it in kind of Maradona terms. It's but, extraordinary. I mean, it's, Have you seen this? No. It's, you know? it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a long ball upfield, no? Yeah. He just completely kills it. He doesn't just kill it and it takes a bobble. It just rolls off his foot. Yeah, it's not even like Bergkamp against Argentina where uh, it's, it's even kind of cleaner first control than that. And... From the control to the shot, there's, I think, uh, six hundredths of a second. Wow. Um, just gives Perrin absolutely no It's the no angle chance. as well. It's not easy. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and Perrin is covering his near post as well. But yeah. um, It's like it's been edited. The two yeah. different bits have been spliced together. Long ball, no, and now we'll go to the bit where he had it anyway. Mm. But Bernadeschi's was incredible yeah. as well, no? Um, ball gets fired into him. He, he kind of lifts it up on his left, uh, right and then volleys it in with his left into the top corner. Beautiful stuff. Saturday, Milan take on mm-hmm. Juventus. Milan got themselves a win, 4-1 against Chievo. A lot of people saying, huh, Bonucci was in the stands. That's not a coincidence. It's a big <laughs> yeah. game, this. He's, he's going to be missing for the game he is. Yeah, he's, against he's, Juventus. He's banned for two games. Um, wasn't at all uh, a game you could take for granted, that win that they got against Chievo. It was away. Chievo were unbeaten in six games. They were ahead of Kie- uh, Milan in the table. But, um, yeah, Juventus uh, are not... Um, they're not keeping clean sheets at the moment. They've conceded in, in their last four games. Um, the manager, Allegri, yesterday said that uh, uh, if we play like we did against Spal, it's not going to be enough against Milan. But they, they're scoring. They're the top. This is the thing about Juventus. They're always the team with the best defence. Now they're the team with the best attack. It's the most prolific year season they've had since 1951. Um, so uh, it should be a, a really good game on early Saturday evening. Early about, Saturday yeah. evening. You, you know what we need? What do we need? We need a totally Italian football well, there's show. There's so many things we need. Yeah. Oh, Where are we going to find one of those? <laughs> Who would sponsor that? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, so there you go. With that, we've reached the end of today's Totally Football show. Many thanks to Ian and James. Carrie, is there a wrestling match that I should watch to get myself into this <laughs> air quote sport? <laughs> oh, what did you do? Okay, that was that was that was unnecessarily harsh, I think, Mr. Richardson. Well, it's um, no more believable than City. <laughs> um, a match that you should watch. Okay, look up the Undertaker against Giant Gonzalez from okay, WrestleMania. The, the under which which WrestleMania is this? Oh, uh, producer Ben will know the year. Undertaker v Giant Gonzalez. Yeah. Big man, is he? Yeah. <laughs> You'll enjoy his gear. <laughs> right. And wrestling I didn't know fans. they had semi-pro wrestlers, so The Undertaker... Oh, it's just a name. My mistake. WrestleMania 9, there we go, says WrestleMania producer 9. Ben. Thank you. So, because does it have the guy with the, the urn? Paul Bearer, yeah. Paul Bearer, yeah. <laughs> Such a good Paul, name. Paul Bearer. <laughs> well, the urn would have been quite good yeah. itself, actually. Yeah. Um, OK. Or Ash. <laughs> Could I just, before we go... Does he offer stiff competition? <laughs> Is this all old to anyone? You should be on WrestleMania. You, you say, really should. Really? Yeah. I don't think so. Could I just say congratulations to Steve Ryan at Cornerstone, who okay. became a daddy for the first time. Mother and baby doing well. Well oh, done, that's Steve. I'm going to leave it there. You have yourself a great weekend, listener. But make sure you join us again on Monday when we'll be back with another exciting edition of the Totally Football Show. For now, from all of us here, it's bye-bye. 
the Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com.